as we've heard, we're finishing up this series now from over the summer called Taboo, where we've been talking about some of the topics that you have wanted to talk about uh, that uh, we haven't talked about here at Grace in quite some time. I just want to personally thank each one of you for pushing me over the summer with these topics and getting me to talk about some of the things that I naturally would just kind of avoid. And so thank you for helping me uh, see which issues are really on your heart and your mind. Uh, we're gonna, today is our last normal Sunday on uh, Taboo. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to actually be doing a roundtable discussion with some members of our preaching team, and we're going to be touching on a number of topics that you gave us that I just haven't had time to be able to cover uh, in this series. So next, be, join us next week as we kind of cover a series of uh, different issues that you sent in to us that um, you might be interested in hearing us share a little bit from God's Word about this morning or th- that next week. Now, uh, today, uh, as you heard, we're going to be talking about another uh, kind of a difficult topic to be discussing, and that is the topic of suicide. Um, Just a heads up to those of you with maybe parents of young kids in the room, it's totally up to you whether you decide to leave your young kids in here or not. If you would like to uh, check them into children's ministry, Pastor Brian is in the back and would love to just direct you toward the children's ministry area if that is something you desire. But let me just say, for those of you who are teens in the room, I am so glad you're here, and I don't want you going anywhere. In fact, when I wrote this message several days ago, I wrote this with you on my heart and on my mind. And um, I hope that this message especially speaks to you today, because I know that this issue is a difficult one to talk about. Um, Most of us, if not all of us, have grieved over the loss of someone who has died by suicide whether it's been because of mental illness or medications or past mistakes or some other reason. I'll start by this morning by sharing a story with you. Um, this summer, my family, we, we took a vacation. And um, I'll never forget one morning in particular while we were on vacation, I woke up and I saw my son on his cell phone. No surprise that he, I woke up and he's on his cell phone. Uh, that, I think that thing's attached to him. It's just the first thing he grabs when he wakes up in the morning. And I would say that is not him. I'm sure if I were to be on, if you all were to be honest, I bet most, if not all of you, do the exact same thing, right? It's the first thing we grab in the mornings. So it wasn't a surprise that I saw him on his cell phone. It wasn't a surprise that I saw him watching a YouTube video because I think all he really needs on his cell phone is YouTube and all of his texting apps. If he could delete the phone app from his cell phone, I think he'd do that. Because it really not, has a whole lot of use to him. But, um, yeah, so he was watching a YouTube video. And that wasn't a surprise to me either. But what was a surprise to me was what he was watching. He was watching a suicide video of a 29-year-old man named Atika. Who's well known in the gaming circles. Because, in fact, he had a YouTube channel that had nearly a million subscribers to it. And um, this suicide note that he was leaving basically was his last cry out. Shortly after this video posted online, his belongings were found. Some of them were found on the edge of the Brooklyn Bridge. And a few days later, he was found downriver. He was a bright and loved young man who struggled with depression for years. And a couple of times over the past year, he had talked about suicide, but he never got the help that he needed. A couple of months before that, I was surprised to see the former president of the nation of Peru, a 10-year uh, president of Peru, had committed suicide. Or I shouldn't say committed suicide, died by suicide. And before that, uh, well-known CNN host and chef Anthony Bourdain lost his life to suicide as well. 
I went online last night as I was preparing this message just to make sure there was nothing that I was missing about this topic because it just seems to be coming up constantly in the news. And wouldn't you know, I saw that just uh, day before yesterday, the U.S. Air Force has uh, published an article that says that they see that this issue of suicide is such, an, such a, a problem among the ranks of the U.S. Air Force that they're now um, calling in the next few days a day-long total stand-down where they were going to address this issue head-on. In their ranks. We see suicide claiming the lives of politicians, of performers, of preachers, kids, even preachers. I mean, just a few months ago, I heard a, a pastor of a mega church in California who lost his life to suicide, and no one knew the depths of depression that he had been struggling with. This spring, here at Grace, I know of at least two families who have lost a loved one, young men in their young dads, to suicide. Some have called suicide a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And while I I think that's true, for the person who is considering suicide, their problems seem far from temporary. And it can be easy to feel in those moments that that their world is filled with nothing but an utter sense of hopelessness. But for those who are considering suicide, they feel trapped walking in the dark, and they need people who love them enough to help them find the light again and to even see God's love and plans for their lives. And this is where we as the body of Christ are called to take a stand. We're called to stand up and love, actively love our neighbor as we find people who are struggling with life or struggling with life situations to walk with them, even though their worlds may be a bit dark. You know, no one thinks that suicide will affect them and their families until it does, right? And the toll of suicide, the toll that suicide's taken in our nation right now is getting worse by the year. The latest numbers that I have seen is that a tenth of deaths in our country today are to suicide. A tenth. I'm sorry, not a tenth. The tenth leading cause of death is to suicide. And among young people... It's the number two cause of death, only being out by auto accidents. So it's the number of suicides has increased about 30% in just the last few years. And a lot of people are trying to study this and understand why is this happening? Why has there been such a spike in the last five to ten years around suicide? And some of the theories, some of the research that's being done is actually around cell phone usage, believe it or not. For a couple of reasons. One, because uh, some are saying that uh, smartphone use is actually disconnecting us from live human interaction. And it's putting us more into a digital world. And secondarily, that social media feeds is constantly feeding the message to us that we're not enough. There's someone else who has a life that's better, that's more meaningful, that's more rich than me. And for every suicide, believe it or not, this, was, this one really surprised me. For every suicide in the United States today there have been 25 more unsuccessful attempts. One-fourth of American teens thought seriously about suicide in the last year. And one out of 15 students in the United States tried it last year. Think about that. You think this is a problem we need to talk about? I think it is. But certainly, this is not a new problem. In fact, you can go back to some... Some of our oldest places in history, you can even look at 
the Word of God, and you can find that people have struggled with thoughts of depression and suicide for a really long time. In fact, I went back and looked, and in our Bibles, there are seven accounts of different people who lost their lives to suicide. And there are still more in Scripture that didn't uh, lose their lives to suicide, but they certainly had thoughts of suicide. And we're going to look at one of those stories today. It's actually found in 1 Kings chapter 19. So I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there, if you would, to 1 Kings 19. Uh, you can also, again, uh, as every week, go to uh, mygrace.church on your web browser and click into the Messages tab there, and you can follow along with the Scriptures there as well. We're going to look at the story of a man who loved God and was greatly used by God. Yet, this man came to a place where depression and life circumstances overwhelmed him. And his name was Elijah. His story is found in the books of First and Second Kings. In this story we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see Elijah is literally running for his life. And he quickly gets to the point where he asks God to take his life. So let's see what this story, uh, how this story unfolds in 1 Kings 19. I'm just going to jump right in the middle of his story here, starting in verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. If you know anything about the story of Elijah and his life, you know this. Elijah was a great man of faith. He walked closely with God, and he seemed to be afraid of nothing. But in the chapter before, and this is the part we don't have time to look at this morning, but you can this week. In chapter 18, you see a culmination of things happening in Elijah's life. God has called him to take a stand against the, the uh, people, you know, the, the, the paganism that's just infiltrating Israel. And people are walking away from God and following foreign gods. And God is calling Elijah to take a stand. Even the king of Israel at this time, his wife Jezebel, is setting up prophets and these false teachers all over the nation to proclaim a, a God other than the one that they have been called to serve. And so he is taking a stand against what he is seeing in his nation. And it comes to a, a kind of a climax where it, on this mountain called Mount Carmel, he challenges these false prophets before everyone. And he, with God's hand on him, he's victorious. And then right after that story, what you see at the end of chapter 18 is he's barely had a chance to take a breath. And he falls to his knees and he starts praying for God to relieve this this drought, this famine that's hit the land, this famine that's lasted for three years. People are dying. And in this moment, as God is on him, you know, and fight, literally he has prayed that God would call down fire from heaven and it happened. In this moment, he prays and he asks God to break this drought and break this famine. And it's, the story goes in chapter 18. Even while he's praying, this monstrous storm arises and just dumps rain, this thunderstorm is so intense that the story goes here that he actually takes off down the mountain and runs for 15 miles. I actually have a pic, pic, last summer while we were on sabbatical, uh, we were actually there on Mount Carmel. 
and we were actually able to um, see this spot where um, Elijah um, met God and everyone saw that happen. And we also saw, which was really incredible, on the top of Mount Carmel, we were able to see, if you can flip to that next picture, this valley that sits around Mount Carmel. And we were able to see how, I mean, literally, Elijah ran down this mountain in a monstrous thunderstorm and ran 15 miles in a thunderstorm to the, to the next city. You think he might have been physically and emotionally spent by this moment in his life? So when Jezebel says in chapter 19, verse 2, that I'm going to take Elijah's life for what he's done, when when Jezebel says, okay, that's it, Elijah, I'm going to kill you, Elijah just can't deal with it anymore. He can't deal with life anymore. He has been pushing too hard, too long. And he did something that may, you may be reading this account, and you may think, well, what Elijah does next is totally irrational. But he decides to not just run down the mountain, but the next day he decides to flee to a city called Beersheba that is a hundred miles away. He then leaves his helper behind, the story goes, and he travels another full day by himself into the desert to have a suicide talk with God. Now, how did God respond to this? Look at verse 5. It says, But as he was sleeping, an angel touched Elijah and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to, get this, travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. On foot, I'm sure. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. So, what happened here? Does, does God chastise Elijah in this moment? Is God like, son, what are you doing? Why are you acting this way? Right? Do, do we see God frustrated or angry at Elijah in this moment when he's having these thoughts, praying to God to take his life? No, we don't. We don't even see in this part of the story that God even tries to address the problems in Elijah's life. What we do see is that God is lovingly ensuring that he has the sleep, the rest, and the food and the drink that he needs to recover in that moment. And then, as you just saw, Elijah gets this burst of energy. He feels like he's physically recovered, and he runs off even further. He doesn't go back to town, but he actually flees the country and travels 40 days, three to 400 miles away to this place called Mount Sinai. And he's hiding in this cave still for his life. And it's at this moment that we see in the story that God truly speaks to him. He makes himself known to Elijah. And God makes his presence known through a storm, through an earthquake, and even through a fire. But I love how it describes here in this passage that it's then in the gentlest of whispers that Elijah hears God's voice. Look at verse 12. It says, And after the earthquake there was a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire there was a sound of a gentle whisper. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. (laughs) See, in this moment, Elijah's just letting it all out with God. God's asking in this moment tenderly to, to Elijah, Son, what are you doing why do, you, why do you keep running? What's with all this death talk and these decisions that you're making? But you see, Elijah is stuck in this moment. And if you're one of the many people, I know in a room like we have today, many of you have considered suicide. In fact, sometimes you feel like your thoughts have just been consumed with it. And for those of you who've never experienced it, It's difficult to understand. But if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You can just get in a moment where you're just totally stuck and you cannot see the goodness of God around you. Everything is utter hopelessness. And that's that's where Elijah is in this moment as a result of all the circumstances that have happened in his life. And he's not thinking properly. But notice how this story transpires in verse 15. It says, Then the Lord told him, Elijah, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shephat. I don't know. I'm, my, English, my southern English just really doesn't pronounce Hebrew words well. apologize. Um, from the town of Abel-Mehaloah to replace... You as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. You see, God's basically telling Elijah in this moment listen, son, I'm not done with your life yet. I have plans, I have a purpose for your life. I am God. I can just see the tenderness in God's words here. As he, no doubt he's reminding Elijah, Elijah, don't you know I can handle the most seemingly unsurmountable problems in your life? In this moment, God's just reminding Elijah, trust me. Trust me. God, if you continue reading this, this as the story progresses into chapter 20 and beyond, you see that God then uses Elijah to confront King Ahab again. And then to confront another king called Ahaziah. And ultimately, God uses him to appoint his ministry replacement, this man who would be known as Elisha. God continues to use Elijah, even in the pain and the suffering of his circumstances. You know, stress and pain, even having... Uh, our sleep or our diets off can have a huge impact on depression and even suicidal thoughts. It can also, the, the, the suicidal thoughts can also come from heredity. They can come from physical illness. They can come from mental illness. They can come from imbalances in brain chemistry we're finding out now. They can come as a reaction to medications that we're taking. They can be 
further exacerbated by feelings of shame and loneliness or, or failure. And again, these things, these thoughts, these things that I'm discussing with you, they may sound totally crazy and irrational to you unless you've been there. And then you understand what I'm talking about. As I was praying and walking around the house thinking about how I was going to talk about this message today, I saw this little book on my, in my living room. And this is one of my prized possessions. It's a, uh, it's a government-issued Bible from, to my grandfather as he joined the military service in 1945. It's a powerful reminder to me of the faithfulness of him. Because when I was growing up as a kid, I tell you what, he was my rock. I've never, even to this day, I've never known a man who is more committed to his faith, more strong and stable. I mean, he was like this all the time. I never saw him waver in his faith, no matter what came against him. Yet, there came a domino effect in his life in 2003 when he had some circumstances that were pretty tragic happen in his life. And he was having trouble sleeping. And he went to the doctor and he was prescribed pain medications that, and they didn't tell him that one of the side effects were suicidal thoughts. And by the end of that week, he had taken his life. Is suicide a sin? Yes. Unless the person who's taking their life don't even know what they're doing. And oftentimes we find that's actually what is happening in these situations. The Bible makes it clear. Exodus chapter 20. It's in the Ten Commandments, right? You, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not murder others. <laughs> like we have a, a pass on ourselves. It says you shall not murder, Period. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago when I actually did a mess, a taboo topic of the one of, of abortion, I talked about this idea of you know, uh, when, I, when I discussed the sanctity of life, we went back to Genesis chapter 1, do you remember? And we talked about how um, God gave human beings dominion over all the plants and animals on the earth, but he didn't give us dominion over human life. And in fact, God made it very clear that human beings are made in the image of God and they're for that reason, they are sacred. And God said, you do not have dominion over human life. That is my territory. I make those decisions. And further, we saw in that message that from the book of Psalms and other places, how we see this, the words of God say that God creates us uniquely. He uniquely forms and fashions each one of us in the mother's womb. And he gives us a unique plans and purposes for each one of our lives. And so God knows the timing of our lives. Each one of us. And he wants to be the one who makes those decisions of when we go to be with him. Suicide is just us taking that role away from God because of the helplessness and confusion that we're struggling with. And suicide is never God's will. I know that in a crowd this size, there are not only people who have had thoughts of uh, suicide in the past. But it would, it, no doubt, there are some of you who here today who have even in the recent past, or even presently, are struggling with those thoughts. And I tell you, the greatest danger in those moments is what suicide can do to us. Because in those moments, the, the human mind naturally turns inward. And we block out the very means of support 
that we need. Our thoughts aren't as clear as they normally would be and we can't even process what's going on in our lives the way we need to. And that's why it's so important in those moments when we're struggling with those feelings to not isolate ourselves, but to reach out to someone that we can just share our story with. And it's also so important that we we're really present in the lives of those that we love, that we care for, our friends, our family members, and we notice the signs. For some of you who are here in this room, and maybe you've had someone talk with you, and they've shared that maybe they, they have had suicidal thoughts. In those moments, it's so important that we listen well, that we don't try to rationalize, we don't try to fix them, but that we love them in those moments, and that we are committed to walking with them from that day forward. For, for those of you who are in the room who are students, and if, if another student shares with you, you know, I've been struggling with these thoughts, even if they tell you, don't tell anybody, love doesn't keep that a secret. Love speaks up and makes sure that your friend gets the support that they need. It may feel like a betrayal in that moment, but I promise you, it is not. It is the most loving thing we can do. Now, is suicide an unforgivable sin? Absolutely not. God is faithful to forgive all of our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 makes that clear. Now, let me just speak to those of you who are here in the room who have grown up uh, with a Catholic background. I know we live in the desert southwest, and uh, my best guess is about between a fifth and a fourth of those who attend Grace Community Church have a Catholic background. Um, I love the fact that you have found this to be a safe place for those of you who have a Catholic background. Now, let me also say that while there has never been an official teaching in the Catholic Church that suicide is a sin that uh, sends someone to hell. There have been some misinterpretations of the Catholic teaching from years past because the, the Catholic Church has very clearly said for centuries that it is a grave sin. And uh, sometimes that's been misinterpreted in Catholic circles and it's been read that, well, if I, commit, if I take my life by suicide, then I'm bound for hell. There's no evidence, no evidence in Scripture of that whatsoever. And that is not the teaching of the Catholic Church as well. Nowhere does the Bible say that, you know, if, if you, if, the, the, the rationale behind that sometimes has been, well, if you take your life by suicide, you can't ask for forgiveness. And so, you know, you can't be, if you don't ask for forgiveness and you're not forgiven, so you're really in trouble, right? And let me tell you, if, if any one of us in this room had the feeling that we had to make sure we asked for forgiveness of every sin or we were going to go to hell, if we really believe, we'd all be in a heap of mess, wouldn't we? I know I would be. I'm sure I have committed many, many sins that have not been forgiven. Or at least I haven't, even though maybe they've been forgiven, I haven't asked God to forgive me. There's grace in forgiveness. You know, um, I, actually, I, I tend to think that oftentimes we, in this moment, we somehow don't believe, as I taught in, this, in a series not too long ago about decluttering Christianity. I really made it clear that from the book of Galatians that it's Jesus plus nothing. Christ's gift of salvation is free to all of us and you can't earn it. And I think sometimes when it comes to this topic, we, 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 we don't think it's Jesus plus nothing. We think it's Jesus plus, well, I, but I really do need to ask for forgiveness of all my sins and make sure they're covered. In that moment, I think we're actually cheapening the cross. We're saying that somehow we had this little part to play in it. And it doesn't depend on the mercy and grace of God. Yes, God calls us, asks us to, to confess our sins and, and ask uh, 
for God to forgive them because He wants our lives to be changed. He wants our lives to be on a different trajectory. But it doesn't mean that we have to feel bound somehow by making sure we've got every I dotted and T crossed. Because if we did, as I said, we'd all be in trouble. Besides, what kind of God would we be serving if he judged and condemned anyone for making a decision in a moment of desperation and illness? When they don't have the capacity to make the right decision at the time on their own. We affirm here at Grace what God asks of us. That in all situations regarding ourselves and others, we are to choose life. Yes, there are times when life brings with it an inordinate amount of pain and suffering. At times it even brings way too much confusion and even a sense of helplessness. But we choose life whenever necessary and we help others find hope. Even when it seems like there's none to be found. And we do so in three ways. Number one, we pay attention to the signs. I think for most of us, we don't even recognize the signs of severe depression and suicidal thoughts. And it's, does, it's in our best interest that we do know what those are. We'll, we'll speak to that in a little bit. The second thing I'd share with you is don't mind your own business. The book of Hebrews says to warn people so that their lives are not destroyed by sin. It, that means taking talk of suicide seriously and not assuming like many did with Atika that he was, it was just a joke or he's just crying wolf. And lastly, and this is the hardest part, we're to help carry their burden. We're to encourage... When someone comes to us and they are struggling with severe depression, when they're struggling uh, with suicidal thoughts, in those moments, as I say, we're not to be afraid. We're not to run away from those situations. We're not to even to try to help figure out what's going on with them and try to help them, um, help fix them in any way. We're not to rationalize or discredit their feelings. But we're to be present in that moment and to show love in that moment. We don't have to be afraid of the S word around them. Because suicide is real and it's really on their minds. We assure them in that moment that they can lean on us. And that they will never have to walk this road alone again. We ask them, I would encourage you, if that situation ever arises in your life, that you ask them to make a promise, a vow to you, that they will never Follow through with a decision like that without reaching out and calling you first and having a conversation. Studies, research have found that that has been immensely helpful in preventing suicides in this country in recent decades. And we're to offer to go with our friends and family to help them find the support that they need by offering to go with them to that doctor's appointment or to the counselor and even being willing to help them set up that first appointment. This morning, I want to uh, stop talking now, and I want to have someone else come up on stage to share with you a little bit firsthand what um, suicide can do to a family and what we can do to help minister to those who have been victimized by this. So I want to encourage uh, Michael and Tracy Compisi to join us on the stage. Would you give them a hand? So you got your Kleenex box this service. I'm glad you have it. <laughs> Thank you. Guys, I, I, I admire 
the guts that you have to come up here and share with us your story. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about your family? Yeah. Oh, you need a mic. You're going to let me talk again this time, aren't you? Yeah. She started seeing the pictures of Maverick up here and went into tears. And she had this whole part. And oh, well. Um, so we've heard these questions before. And we have talked a little bit about hmm, what are our answers? How do we keep, the, keep this simple and keep it to the point? Because the, um, once you get bereaved parents talking, uh, we'll be here two hours. Well, we'll be here two hours, and whoever's left, we'll just keep going. So um, Tracy and I have been together for 30 years. We've been a couple for 30 years. We've been married for almost 28 years. We, um, we met in Colorado Springs, got married in Tempe, Arizona. We found when we first met that we had a lot of compatible wants and, and needs. We came from the same type of background and growing up, same socioeconomic parents did kind of the same thing. Um, then um, we fell directly into roles based on that, that were compatible and uh, aligned with the things that we wanted in our lives. We ended up with three children, uh, ended up, <laughs> surprise, um, Brenda, Logan, and Maverick. And Brenda's here. Can you raise your hand, Brenda? Yeah, she hates this part. <laughs> raise your hand, Brenda. Brenda's here. She looks just like her, so you can miss her later. Um, and, and we went on to develop those multiple relationships that you have in a family unit. Uh, each of us with our children, us as parents with our children, um, the children, the siblings, and, and all the things that they, um, that they go through. We had lots of experiences because Tracy always wanted to be a mom, and she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, and she said, you go off and chase that education and that career and go do all those things you want to do. And that took us all over the country. We lived in many different places and raised our kids through, you know, lots of sports and activities, exchanging them at a McDonald's parking lot with different uniforms so that you could go to the next event. Some of the parents I see nodding like, we've done that, yeah. Um, we, we raised our children Catholic, but fundamentally we had a Christian ethic hmm. in our house, very strong Christian ethic. And Tracy's been here at Grace for three years. I'm, I'm a Catholic, um, and I, I still uh, go to Mass and different things like that. That's great. So that's our family. So you today um, we, we've talked about suicide, and it, as I said, it's probably easy for many of us to be detached from this topic and assume that it would never affect us until it does, mm-hmm. right? Um, how has suicide changed your family? Well, to, to answer that question, it, it's really important that you know a little bit about Maverick and, and, and how he fit within our family. Um, Maverick was our youngest. He died by suicide on June 17, 2016. He um, went to Ironwood Ridge High School. And Maverick was a very social, outgoing, um, stylish um, very heavy into weight, lifting weights and sports, especially volleyball. He was very entertaining. Um, I, I think the, the British word I like using for it is he was cheeky. 
so, so he kind of had that swagger, you know, I'm Maverick, you're not. <laughs> um, he, um, he had a, a, a quick laugh, liked to make other people laugh, and a smile that would light up a room. We had four weeks. Four weeks. The last week of school, Maverick got bronchitis, and he had to take a nebulizer treatment, a steroid, a breathing steroid. He had to stop his workouts. He had to change his diet. And all of that combined created a, um, a mental chemistry induced suicide ideation. Now, we knew nothing was wrong, but something wasn't right, especially Tracy. We didn't find out any of this until afterwards, going through all his texts, interviewing his friends ad nauseum, um, and, and really trying to figure out what happened here. The, so we had no indication that suicide was on his mind. He became hapless, helpless, and hopeless, like, like you mentioned, and then was gone. The, that night was a, a massive, massive turning point in our lives, and the lives of many others because he, he had strong ties in the community. So, you know, his, and he was one of those people that the school counselors said, Maverick? Maverick wasn't even on our radar for anything like that. In fact, we had to pull the reins on him, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So it sent us down a path uh, to adjust to our lives without Maverick and to live what we call a new normal and what, within what psychologists call complicated grief. You mentioned a little while ago that things didn't seem quite right with Maverick in those last uh, few weeks, but that, that certainly there was, you felt like something wasn't quite right, but nothing that would cause those kinds of alarm bells to go off. What have you learned since then about the warning signs that parents and that others of us can look for with someone who is perhaps considering something like this so that we don't underreact, but we don't overreact either? The, the, um, when you talk about warning signs, um, you need to educate yourself to start with, to, to really understand. We're, we are so good as parents, as a society of understanding physical illness, right? Well, mental illness, we don't get all that training about sore throats, cough, fever, all those things. You don't get that kind of training, and there's no antibacterial lotion that you can put on to, to prevent something like that from happening. So we get that question a lot about, well, what do you do? Um, education is the key, and going on to some of the websites that I think you had some of the websites up that you can go look at, uh, the American Society for um, Prevention of Suicide, the Society for the Prevention of Teen Suicide, very good sites that give you all the details. The main thing is look for behavioral shifts sudden lack of interest in things that would be, they would be excited about, uh, continual negative self-descriptors, I'll never be, I'll always be, I'll, you know, and, and very definitive things that are, that are negative. And then trust your instincts. Tracy's instincts were on fire that last four weeks. Nothing's wrong, but something is just not right. The, what I would tell the, the people that are contemplating suicide, have had those thoughts, 
um, is that your life isn't your own. Your life is owned by the people that love you. And you owe them, owe them a chance to help. You owe them one shot. You have got to speak up. Thank you. And, and, and as, as he mentioned, uh, in your online sermon notes today, we've given you a ton of resources that you can use to kind of look at this a little bit further, find out maybe some of the questions that you have that we don't cover today. Um, th- through this process, you know, I bet you guys have experienced ways that you have felt loved and supported, but also some ways that didn't feel quite so supportive. Um, I think sometimes, you know, for those of us who haven't gone through this personally, but we know someone who has, there can even be a tendency to just kind of avoid that person because we don't know what to say, right? It's like, I'm afraid I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, so I better just avoid you. Um, so could you kind of talk with us about how, how have you been best loved and what that might look like? Okay. Uh, the, um, this is probably the first time you guys have come up against bereaved parents. Um, we're, we're kind of a quirky bunch at times. The... Um, Society has some real biases towards death and suicide, and it's scripted into us uh, all the way through our childhood. That's why the term committed um, is used so much, but is so offensive uh, to people like us. The, um, there are some keys that are very, very helpful when you're dealing with somebody that has lost a person to suicide. First, say the person's name. Mm. It's not offensive. It's, it's considered you're honoring them, um, and, and we like the name. And so, you know, I'll be flipping channels, and much to her chagrin, I'll come across Top Gun, and I'll watch the rest of it. I don't care where it's at because I hear the name Maverick, 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 Maverick all the time. Um, the, um, you will see tears out of nowhere. Uh, just out of nowhere. It wasn't anything you did or said. And the best thing you can do at that point, just give them a hug. Just let them ride through it. Okay. Um, it happens less for us now, but every once in a while, we'll take a left turn and the person's standing there going, what did I say? Nothing. <laughs> um, stay in contact, available, and consistent. That's probably the most, that, that's mm. the most important message. The, uh, we've lost so many friends, family members really? just disappeared. The, um, they, they uh, you know, it's just too uncomfortable for them. Plus, we tell the same stories over and over as we're processing what's going on in, in our lives and how we're feeling. Um, say things like, I don't understand, but I'll listen. And then listen. Avoid counter-arguments. The, the whole, it's not your fault. It wasn't anything you did. You couldn't have done anything. As a parent, there's always something that I should have been able to do. There's always something that we could have grabbed onto and changed the outcome. The, the, you watch them go through woulda, coulda, shoulda, what if, why, and you can't answer those questions. You've got to let them process through it. Yeah. So some things that... Um, you really don't want to say committed is one of the keys committed suicide um, it's considered offensive he's in a better place or they're in a better place may be true but for us 
the best place for Maverick is sitting at our kitchen table for dinner. Uh, time heals all wounds. And, and Tracy and I had a chuckle with, with that one as we were talking about these questions. Uh, we were walking, and, and I said, well, what about this one? Time heals all wounds. And she kind of looked at me, and she goes, yeah, no, it doesn't. Um, it could have been worse. True. could have been worse. But for us, the glass is half empty. Um, when are you going to get over it? Get on with your life. That, uh, it... it We'll never get over it. Things will never get better. They'll just get different. We live life like this every day. We wake up every day, put on a very heavy emotional backpack, and run up a mountain. Now, over time, we've gotten stronger. We've gotten more endurance. We know how to deal with the people along the way while running up the mountain. But we still have to do it every day, and we know it, and we have to accept that in our lives. Wow. Well, I want to thank you guys for being willing to stand up and share these things with us. I also want to share with you guys this morning, um, um, Michael's actually written a book on their experiences called Walks in the Dark. And it's actually available online at Amazon. You can buy it paperback or via Kindle. There'll be also be some outside here in the breezeway. I would strongly encourage you to pick up a copy and read this. This this is one of the best books on this topic I've ever read. Thank you. And that's because it's so, it becomes so real and so personal as you read it. Mm. Um, there's a few parts that you wish you could just skip, <laughs> to be honest, as you read it. But have it's really some powerful. tissues, right? <laughs> yeah. But just, just the part, you know, just that difficult day. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh. And also available in the Breezeway at, uh, at Gift Services Center, there's a couple of little booklets. If you want to just have a, a, something handy for someone, maybe, you, maybe you've got someone in your life that you suspect may be struggling, and you just don't know what to say, or you'd like to put something in their hands to kind of help them to start the process. We want to make sure those resources are available to you that you can take advantage of. So feel free to do that at Gift Services this morning. Well, again, thank you guys for being willing to share a little bit of your story. Um, let's take a moment and, and pray together. Lord God, we just uh, commit this uh, time to you today. Lord, I pray for those who are in this room who have been struggling with thoughts of depression or suicide. Lord, I pray that um, this message will bring a sense of direction and clarity. And that those who are struggling would have the courage to just take that step and go see... uh, a doctor or a counselor, and get the, make the next steps in their journey. Lord, we pray that for the rest of us who are in the body of Christ and don't understand or don't know how to relate, Lord, that you would just give us the courage to just love well, as Michael has talked about, and to be present, to not run away from these difficult topics, but to run into them. Help us, Lord, to shine your light and your hope into the darkness that just invades people's lives at times. For whatever reason. Well, we thank you for allowing us here over these last few weeks to deal with some of these challenging topics and to hear from the truth of your word how we are to approach them. God, we ask that you would equip us to be able to do that well in the months and the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.